0: Good morning, church. Uh, Let's open our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I'll be reading from verses 1 to the end at 20. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea, that you should say, Who will go over the sea and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules. Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord your God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: In case I haven't met you. Uh, my name is Matthew, and like uh, many of you have in recent weeks, I am getting over something. And so, if I sound a bit like a frog, uh, do not be distracted. The word of our living God remains unchanged. And if Paul was with the churches that he planted and pastored in weakness and trembling, I do not hesitate to be with you with the remnants of a little cold. So Lord, I pray this morning, no matter how our bodies are doing, that we would hear from you. Um, you are our life and our length of days. And I pray that you would give us a ten of submissive, obedient, responsive hearts now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. How many of you have ever ever read a choose-your-own-adventure book? Do you know what I'm talking about? Put your hands up if you have. Choose-your-own-adventure. Okay. Yep, a lot of people on the left. Choose-your-own-adventure over here. Um, if you haven't, here's the basic scenario, okay? You are a main character in a story. And the opening chapter in the book presents you with a dilemma of some sort, right? There's a problem, like all good stories. Everything's going lot, something's wrong. Say you hear a strange sound coming from the barn. Do you A, grab a flashlight and investigate? Or B, call the police and wait for them to show up? Which one is it? If you choose the first option, turn to page 35. If you choose the second option, turn to page 38. I will not ask how many of you cheat at this point. No fair. But if you don't cheat, you have no idea what's going to happen next. But if you turn to page 35, you might read, a burglar shoots you as soon as you enter the barn, you're dead. It's, it's, it doesn't, that's really how it goes. Or you turn to page 38, you might read, when the police arrive, they can't find anything wrong. And the adventure continues. So what's, what's the point? The whole thrill, supposedly, some of you think, I hate books like this, but the thrill for those that enjoy them comes from making choices where the consequences are completely unknown. And the best books have all kinds of unexpected endings where the result of choosing a particular course of action comes completely as a surprise. Friends, your relationship with God is not like a choose your own adventure book. It's not. Our God is infinitely wise. He knows the end from the beginning. And our God is utterly and completely sovereign, right? He's not just aware of the future. He's what? He is ordaining the future by bringing his perfect will to pass. But he's not just wise or sovereign. He's also not silent. Think about this. He delights to reveal both the future he has ordained and the consequences of your actions in the present in light of the future he has ordained. In other words, reading the Bible to do adventure book language would go like this. If you turn to page 35, this is what will happen to you. If you turn to page 38, this is what will happen to you. Because God's not silent. The Bible's filled with moments where he says in no uncertain terms, if you make this choice, this is what will happen. Or if you make that choice, that is what will happen. The the sovereignty of God, some of us get hung up with this, but the sovereignty of God does not eliminate the consequences of our decisions, brothers and sisters it raises the stakes because we get to know them in advance does that make sense they're not possibilities or probabilities they're certainties because you can take God at his word as we look at God's word today in deuteronomy 30 we are reaching the conclusion of Moses' final sermon before he dies, that this is his farewell. It's the climax of the entire book of Deuteronomy. And the book goes down in this way. After 40 years or so of wandering in the wilderness, Israel's about to enter the promised land. So Moses reviews the history of their relationship with the Lord. He lays out general principles of the law, specific illustrations of those principles. And then in chapters 27 and 30, Moses leads Israel in renewing their covenant relationship with the Lord. And he explains exactly what's going to happen if they choose to obey or disobey. Tells them exactly what's going to happen. It's it's not a choose-your-own-adventure, Israel. The consequences are known. The consequences are certain. And his, his final plea to the people comes right here at the end, of chapter 30. Israel, choose the gift of life by turning to the Lord. That's his plea. Choose life by turning to the Lord. Question, is spiritual life a gift from God, a gift only he can provide? Yes. But is spiritual life also a real choice Israel must make, a choice between holding fast to the Lord We're going our own way. Yes. It's both a gift and it's a choice. And friend, that is not a contradiction. That's a paradox. They're both true. God's gift is a real gift. And your choice is a real choice. And in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 30, where we're going to linger Moses encourages us to choose life, to make that choice by telling us exactly what will happen if we turn to the Lord, exactly what will happen. The result isn't a mystery. You don't have to wait till you get to page 35 or page 38. It's not a mystery. It's a promise. And it's a promise in two parts. This is a two-point sermon. Here's the first promise. What will happen if you turn to the Lord? Promise one, all who turn to the Lord are transformed from the inside out. Everyone, amen. Thank you, Lord. Everyone who turns to the Lord is what? Transformed from the inside out. Look at verse one. In Verse one, Moses turns Israel's attention to the future. To the future, a day when, when what's gone down? A day when she's tasted the blessings of life in the land and she's tasted the curse of death and exile. All the promises that, that Moses just finished making, everything he just finished saying in chapter 28, have come to pass. The people of God are what? Among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. They're in exile. And at that point, Moses declares, "Wait, when you hit, as it were, rock, Bottom. Some of you know what that feels like. You are going to call to mind, Israel, notice that language, everything I have set before you today. You're going to remember God's word. The word I preached to you, and, and you will realize, Israel, that all of it was true. What your parents told you as you were growing up in the church is true. More true than you knew. You'll realize you're, you're experiencing the divinely designed consequences of sin. You'll realize that all, all the trouble going down in your life and thousand different ways it's all connected to this brokenness in your relationship with the Lord I abandoned the Lord that's why I'm in exile you'll experience the grace of conviction because it is a grace You'll, you'll realize Israel scripture explains the story of your life in, in the depth of your soul, you'll, you'll feel your need for God to restore the relationship with Him your sin ravaged. Look back at verse 1. The second word, when. Don't you love the fact that Moses says that day is a when and not an if. I've been chewing on that all week. Oh, Lord, it's a when. It's not an if. Why? Because we serve a faithful and sovereign God, King's way. He delights to grant the grace of conviction. And he what? He uses his word to do it, right? That's why one of the best things you could do in 2024 with any friend of yours or family member of yours who doesn't know Jesus is what? To invite them to read and study God's word with you. He uses his word to do that. And what does God's effectual word do? Notice it. It doesn't just prompt Israel to simply change your behavior or stop yelling at the kids so much or start going back to church or or to think positive thoughts about herself. No, no. The word of the Lord compels Israel to turn toward the Lord. That's what it does. The word of the Lord compels her. It's going to compel you. And that day, Moses says, to turn to the Lord. Verse 2, you what? When you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. God's word compels her to return. To choose life by returning to the Lord of life. And friend, that's a a turning or a returning that goes down at the level of your heart. Your inside. The control center of your inner man, so to speak. That turn looks like like turning away from embracing your own thoughts, your own desires, your own commitments, and turning toward what? God's thoughts, God's desires, God's commitments. You you turn away from from stiff-arming God and turn toward trusting God. You turn away from believing in yourself, trying to create life by, by keeping all the rules or breaking all the rules and what you, you turn toward believing in Jesus, the eternal Son of God, tr- trusting Him to, to rescue you from death and give you life. Where you used to ignore what God says is wrong, you see sin for what it really is. Death to your soul. Instead of enjoying sin, you grieve sin. Instead of hiding sin, you confess sin. Instead of celebrating and loving it, you're ashamed of it and hate it. You you come to your senses, spiritually speaking. You 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 turn off the path of obeying your voice and turn toward the path of obeying God's voice. Because you know that's the only path that leads to life. That's the turn. That's the return. And if you want one word to describe all that, you know what the biblical word is for that? Repent. Repent. It's repentance. Moses isn't talking here about a day when Israel will feel bad for the wrong things they've done. That's not repentance. Or that day Israel will, you know, try to listen to her better angels or or, or be a better person. A lot of people are going to try to do that. 2024 is coming up. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to try to be better this year. That's not what repentance is, friend, at all. Listen, repentance will change the way you relate and behave toward other people. But repentance fundamentally has nothing to do with other people. It has everything to do with how you are relating to your maker, how you're relating to God. The core of repentance is a change in the way you're relating to God. It's about returning to the Lord. And what does God promise will happen if Israel does that? Look at verse 3. Same things God promises will happen if you repent today, friend. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the people where the Lord your God has scattered you. What does what, what God promise he will do if you repent? Again, it's not a choose-your-own-adventure. It's, it's a known It's a certainty. What's the promise? He will mercifully restore you. Starting in your relationship with him and extending to every corner of your life. Why? Because the grace of God doesn't leave any rock unturned. Doesn't matter how far you've gone. What's Moses say? From the uttermost parts of heaven, verse four, God is able to save you. No matter what's happened, No matter how deeply buried you are under the consequences of sin, Jesus is able to draw you out and bring you back to himself. He died for your forgiveness, friend. He rose to set you free. Is your child far from God, mom or dad? Is your close friend far from God? Spiritually speaking, is the the spouse sleeping in bed next to you at night in the uttermost parts of heaven? What's God say he will do? They repent. From there, the Lord your God will gather them. From there, the Lord your God will take them. But brothers and sisters, do not lose heart in the work of personal evangelism this year, okay? God is able. The gospel is powerful. Jesus is mighty to save. Amen. And look at verse five, because I want you to notice here, when we repent, God does a lot more than just bring us out of the land of darkness. No more curses and thorns and thistles. No, a lot more than that, okay? He promises to bring us into the land of his kingdom. It's out of one land into another land. Well, what is that land, you ask? Great question. Well, for Israel, it was a physical swath of geographic territory in the Middle East that's forever being fought over today. What is that land for the people of God today? What's God's place? What's God's family? Where is the life of God's kingdom, like an embassy on earth, revealed and experienced and seen by a watching world? Right here. God's place is the church. Your place, Christian, the land that God brings all who he draws out of darkness into is covenant membership in the community of the local church. That's the place. I hear you, pastor, some say. I hear you, but there's something I need to tell you that you might not know, Matthew. With my mind, I agree it's all true, everything you're saying. If you turn to the Lord, you'll be transformed from the inside out, out of darkness into God's place, blah, 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 blah. I agree it's all true. But pastor, there's something deep within my heart that just doesn't want to obey. You ever felt that, friend? Oh, I felt that. I I know exactly what obedience requires right now. It's crystal clear. And I don't want to do it. I just don't want to do it. It's not a knowledge problem. It's a will problem. Pastor, I I just, I agree if I turn to the Lord and repent, good things will happen, but I just don't want to. I just don't want to. Is there any hope for you? Friend, there's more hope than you could ever realize. It's found in verse 6. This may be, hands down, the most precious promise in the entire book of Deuteronomy. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Amen. What? What is, let's think about this. Now, just get excited about it. (laughs) What is physical circumcision? Okay, what is it? All right? It's an outward consecration of the body. Some of you parents are grateful I said it just like that. That's what it is. It's an outward consecration of the body. All right? What is spiritual circumcision? It's an inward consecration of the heart. It's what Scripture calls the, the miracle of regeneration or being born again. It's a work of the Spirit, where where He removes the hardness, He removes the blindness. He He gives you a new will, a new desire, a new power to choose life. And then, and only then, look at verse eight. Does this come to pass? And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all His commandments. There can be no verse eight unless there's first a verse six. There's a reason, an eternally God-glorifying, soul-satisfying, sin-defeating reason that verse 6 comes before verse 8. Because in Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses tells Israel, guys, your biggest problem is that your heart isn't right before the Lord. You need to circumcise your heart. And then in Deuteronomy 29.4, what Josh preached, He reminds Israel it's it's a work only God can do. So when you cross over into the land, guys, most of you will not obey the Lord. Why not? Because he has yet to give you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now track with me here. There would be notable exceptions to that. Think of women like Ruth or Abigail or men like Joshua or, or David. I could go on. But, but on the whole, what's the point? Spiritual Israel, spiritual Israel, the regenerate, born-again people of God remained a very small portion of the physical assembly of the people of God, of the nation. And yet God's promise through the mouth of his prophets remained. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh one day and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Ezekiel isn't saying that there's no Christians until Jesus shows up. He's saying that there's a coming day where God's work of regenerating, of circumcising the heart, isn't just going to be a select few within the assembly. It is going to be the whole assembly. All of the genuine people of God will be born again through the Spirit. And friends, the day that miracle dawned was the very first Christmas. We were singing about that earlier hope you noticed that, the day the eternal Son of God took on human flesh because Jesus arrived. And, and the moment, the very moment he was conceived in Mary's womb, sin and death were put on notice. In what sense? Sin and death, the stubborn will of man will not conquer the will of God. God has come to do what only God can do. And, and Christian, what, what did God do after he, after he lived and died to redeem you from sin and death? He ascended back to heaven. What did he do there? Chilled. No. (laughs) He poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit upon his people. The indwelling spirit of God. Pentecost brought verse 6, to pass. Listen to Romans 2, 28. Now, under the new covenant, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, a member of the people of God, a genuine member of the people of God, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. What's Moses' point? What's, what's Paul's point? The same point I'm making today, friend. You need God to change your heart. No less than Israel. You don't have power to love the Lord your God with wholehearted devotion, but the Spirit does because he is God. Think about that. No one loves God more than God. No one's more satisfied with all that God is and has been and always will be than God himself. And so when God has put his spirit, not just the eminence of his power, but the third person of the Trinity, not the crazy uncle, fully God, in you, you have the very power God has to love the Lord your God. He's able to give you a will to turn to Jesus and a desire to obey Jesus. But here's the question. How does that miracle happen? You're just chilling along and going running your own business and wham! Spirit of God! <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Didn't really want that. Not interested in that at all, but I guess it's going down. Yeah. Well, God delights to break in and surprise us. But friend, that miracle happens when you choose to repent. This is really important. Okay? Look at verse 6. <laughs> The when of verse 6, the when it goes down, is crystal clear in verse 1 and verse 10. So if verse 6 in the middle is what will God do that makes it all happen, verse 1 and verse 10 are the bookends that remind us, that encourage us, that warn us, this is when it happens. Verse 1, when you return to the Lord, with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 10. When you turn to the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. Is spiritual regeneration a supernatural work of grace? Yes. Yes. But we are not passive in the process. Okay? God works the miracle and it is a miracle and it is God's work as you choose to repent. Notice I did not say we choose to repent and then God works the miracle or we do our part and then God does his business partners. No, they cannot be separated. They can't be separated. Don't try to separate them. You can't. They're two sides of the same coin. How do we know that? Not just because the pastor says so. Look at the book, all right? Because the phrase Moses uses to describe the result of our choice to repent in verse 1 and verse 10, turning to the Lord with what? All your heart, all your soul. is the same phrase he uses in verse 6 to describe the result of spiritual circumcision. Loving the Lord with what? All your heart and all your soul. So is the spiritual life a gift God gives or a choice you make? Yes. Yes. It's a gift and it's a choice. There is no gift without a choice and there is no choice without the gift. Which is why, please hear me, passages like Deuteronomy describe repentance as what? Choosing the gift of life. You want a definition of repentance? That's a great one. Choosing the gift of life. Whereas Paul commands in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God helps those who help themselves. No. No. I sure hope that's not being projected. (laughs) Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Put it together like this, all right? God is gracious. His work enables and empowers our work. And we are not passive. He transforms us from the inside out as we repent few words of application before we move to point two. So many people, why why do I linger here? So many people try to change their behavior without the grace of repentance. Try to change their actions without dealing with their relationship with God, right? I'm trying to be a better husband. I'm trying to be a better son or daughter. I'm trying to be a better person, friend, Deuteronomy 30, especially verse 6, shouts at you, that's not going to work. That's never going to work. You can't transform yourself from the inside out. What's the first main point promise of this passage? It's not a mystery. It's not a, I wonder what's on page 38. No, those who turn to the Lord, only those who turn to the Lord, are transformed from the inside out. And frankly, my own life is a case study. I debated sharing this, but I think it'll be helpful, seeing as how my voice is holding up. For for much of the last 16 years of pastoral ministry, I have worked way more hours each week than is healthy or wise in the long run. Thank you, Chris. (laughs) My beloved fellow elder, sustainable sacrifice has not been the name of the game. During the first few years, I thought of that problem as primarily a work-life balance issue. You know what I'm talking about, all you corporate types? Yeah, I probably need to work less. I'm really proud of how much I work, but probably need to work less. Right? <laughs> Manage my time better. Schedule better. Listen to the wife, you know. But nothing really ever changed. Now, there are a multitude of circumstantial factors in play with this issue that have required a certain amount of hours over the last however many years. It's a complicated situation, and what I'm about to say is not reducing all of that labor to one explanation, because real life is never like that. And God calls every one of us to lay down our lives to follow Jesus, right? So the point of me sharing this isn't like, oh, I feel bad for Pastor Matthew. No, (laughs) no. Serving him is an unspeakable privilege. But here's what God has been showing me over the last couple years. A big part of the issue here is that I need to walk in repentance. Oh, is the pastor talking about repenting? I thought he had to be perfect. Isn't that why he's the pastor? No. I'm trying to follow Jesus just like y'all. Right? So what do I? how do I need to walk in repentance? I, I need to turn away, in many respects, to turn away and keep on turning away. I'm not talking about a moment. I'm talking about a life here, okay? A life of turning away from trusting that my work or my attention or my power or how quickly I answer your emails will build this church. But that's not repentance, right? At that point, that would just be a behavior change. What do I need to turn toward? (laughs) The Lord in some way, right? So what's that mean? Turning toward trusting that God's work, God's power, and God's faithfulness builds this church. Do you see that? You can pray for me in that regard. All right, why do I mention this illustration? Because I want you to see that the grace of repentance, that the process of turning to the Lord, being transformed from the inside out, because that's a promise, not an uncertainty. Well, that'll happen if you repent. That, that grace, that process, isn't just something that you need at the beginning of a Christian life. You know, there's so many Christians who just say, Pastor, I appreciate that word of repentance. The world going to hell needs more talk about repentance. I repented when I was four, and I've been loving Jesus ever since. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You've needed to continue repenting ever since. What's, what's Luther's delightful phrase? Christian life is a a life of repentance. Because it's not about your moment. Every day, every moment, are you turning toward God? Are you turning toward God? When a toddler throws a tantrum in the parking lot 30 minutes from now, are you going to turn to the Lord? When your company opts to withhold the bonus you anticipated next week, are you going to turn to the Lord? When you feel numb on the inside because of chronic pain or are just desperate for rest after a stressful week, are you going to turn to the Lord? When you know you've done something wrong, will you turn to the Lord? Look at verse 9. I love, I so love the way Moses describes how God promises, not a mystery, a certainty. Verse 9, he will respond to all who repent. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your father's when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. I want you to banish something with me this morning. Okay? Can can we do this together? I, I want you to banish the thought. Let's just collectively, forever and always, banish the thought that you should simply repent to stay out of trouble. I know why I should repent, because God says bad things happen to those who don't. So I'm going to get busy repenting and watching my shoulder the whole time. Banish that thought, friend. That won't get you anywhere down the path of persevering in the faith. Why not? Because you need to repent. What's the point of verse 9? So that you might experience the joy of being God's beloved child, of living under the smile of his favor, under the waterfall of His blessings, Ephesians 1, God has given us in Christ what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're not repenting. Don't you dare repent just to stay out of trouble. Repent so that you might know the joy of God what? Taking delight in prospering you. The Lord longs to be gracious to you, friend. He rises. show you compassion. He's, he is, as it were, just picture this in your mind. God is on the edge of his seat. All you young people that play sports, he's in the ready position. All right. He's on the, I saw your look, Garrett. Is this the ready position? Sort of. I didn't play sports. So (laughs) my brother did, but that's another story. My ready position was like, when can we get snacks? God is in the ready position. He's waiting. He's eager. He's watching. He's expectant. The moment you turn, the moment you repent, he has a deluge of stored up blessing ready to dump over your life. Let's use another sports analogy. He's the lineman with the igloo. And the moment that clock says, deep, we won! Right? The poor coach is just like trying not to go into heart attack. God is eager, ready, waiting. If you're willing to repent. Repentance isn't fundamentally about doing good things instead of bad things. It's about running home to God. Because he is your life. That's the first promise. We know what's on page 35, all right? Now, what's the second promise? Point number two. This is a bit shorter. All who turn to the Lord are able to obey the Lord. What was the first promise? All who turn to the Lord are transformed from the inside out. The second is kind of an implication of the first. What's the second All who turn to the Lord, all repent, are able to obey the Lord. Verses 11 through 14. In this section, Moses deals head on with two common objections to repentance. Let's just call them excuses. All right? Two excuses we often make for not turning to the Lord. Look at verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not, what? Too hard for you. Too hard. You, you ever thought that? Too hard. Pastor, I, you know what? This is just too hard. I know I should repent. I know I should obey God's commands, but it's just too difficult. I can't do it. I can't do it. Or maybe you're walking alongside a, a Christian brother or a sister who's trapped in sin, okay, and and maybe some church members, you included, are urging them to repent. But other people are saying we just need to be patient, wait for God to change their heart. After all, if they're saying repentance feels impossible, isn't the whole point of Deuteronomy, pastor, that, that we're just waiting for God's work to kind of come in as the missing piece here? Pastor, is it loving to urge someone to obey if obedience feels impossible to them? What do you think? How should we think about Moses' instruction here that obedience is not too hard for Israel? Put your careful thinking caps on right now, okay? Here we go. Let's start by agreeing Moses isn't lying. He's not lying. But there are Christians, well meaning Christians, who speak as if he is. And it sounds like this The whole point of the law is to prove what miserable sinners we are and how everything we do is filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. None of us can please God because keeping the law is impossible. But thanks be to God, it wasn't too hard for Jesus, and because he did it all for us, we're good to go! Is that biblical? <laughs> Sarah Campbell says, in a sense, yeah. Some of that is, but most of that is not. It's not careful. And because it's not careful, it's spiritually deadly. Christopher Wright says it well. The idea that God deliberately made the law so exacting that nobody would ever be able to live by it belongs to a distorted theology that tries unnecessarily to gild the gospel by denigrating the law. Am I saying any Israelite could have kept the law on their own? No. I'm not saying that. Because what did Moses just finish saying in verses 1 to 10? Israel, you need to turn to the Lord so that he might circumcise your heart. Only then will you be able to obey. So yes, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise awaited the outpouring of the Spirit under the new covenant. But let's remember, friends, there were genuine believers among the ethnic people of Israel who trusted and obeyed the Lord even before Jesus arrived on the sea. I mean, why, why, else, why does Hebrews 11 come in the faith of so many Old Testament saints, Gentiles included? Why, why do the prophets applaud the obedience of King David or Hezekiah or Josiah's men who what? Did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't because they obeyed perfectly or they earned their salvation through their obedience. The law never told anyone to do that, ever. If you think the point of the law of God was try to earn your salvation through your obedience so you feel your need for Jesus, you don't understand God's law. That's not what it is. That's not what it says. Deuteronomy 9 verse 4, Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness, what I earned, what I achieved, that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Friend, faith-fueled obedience has always been a response to the salvation God works. Under the old covenant, under the new. No change. So, here's the question. If the sincere obedience of a repentant Israelite wasn't perfect, David messed up a lot, well, why is it still commended? (laughs) Because all that was imperfect in it was forgiven for Jesus' sake. The entire sacrificial system pointed to that all along. Bottom line, if any Israelite turned to the Lord, repented of their sins, and were empowered as a result to obey God's law, not perfectly, but faithfully, they could what? They could take joy They could take joy in knowing their obedience was pleasing in God's sight. No less Christian than today, you can take joy in the same. Brothers and sisters, I'll say it this way. If you think or speak, as if every act of obedience in your life is somehow still filthy rags in God's sight. You are not upholding the gospel. You are undermining the gospel because you're saying Jesus' sacrifice is not enough for God to forgive all that is imperfect in your obedience so that he can genuinely delight in even the smallest step of faltering obedience. And in the process you're demolishing one of the most powerful biblical incentives for obedience under the new covenant. Namely, we can please our Father. We can please our Father who loves us through spirit-empowered ability to obey. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord because all you do is filthy rags. No, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Israel's problem, in other words, was not that she could not keep God's commands. God stood ready and willing to change her heart and empower her to obey. Israel's problem was that she would not keep God's commands. She was unwilling. She refused to turn to the Lord. And friend, the same principle holds true today. Let's apply this. Maybe you watch your Christian spouse or you see some Christian friends and you think, man, pfft, living like that just looks too hard. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm just tired watching how many times you pray and read your Bible and go to church. Uh, no, thank you. Friend, if you're willing to turn to the Lord, it's not too hard. That's the whole point. That's the point of verse 11. It's not too hard. Okay, Matthew, well then what should I do? Because it sure feels too hard. Friend, you need to repent. Do you see? You need to repent. The reason it feels too hard is because you've been unwilling to turn to the Lord. But if you turn to the Lord, he will circumcise your heart and suddenly you will realize this is not too hard at all. I can't obey. I can't please God. You need to cry out to God to change your heart and to give you the will to trust and obey him. Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Before we leave this point, Christian, remember this. The spirit of Christ himself dwells in you. In a far greater way than any. Believer enjoyed under the old covenant. Do not listen to me. If you remember this church, listen to me. Do not tell the Lord or his people that you are waiting for him to change your heart so that you can obey. I'll say that again. Do not tell the Lord or your pastors or the people of God, Christian, Christian, dwelt by the Spirit, that you are waiting for the Lord to change your heart so that you can obey. God has already given you through the Spirit all you need for life and godliness. So the question, Christian, the issue is never, am I able? The issue is, are you willing? Are you willing? God's commands are not too hard, brothers and sisters. You're able to please him. So choose life by walking in repentance. Here, here's the second objection. If the first was, it's too hard, here's the second. Second excuse we make, back at verse 11. This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it, what? Far off. <laughs> not far out. Far off. <laughs> far off. What, what's Moses saying here? Why will it not work to say with the agnostic I know there's a god out there somewhere. I'm just not sure who he is. Why will it not work to say with a bible critic? You know, there're just there're just so many interpretations out there, Matthew. How how can we really know what's true? Why will it not work to say with a lazy Christian? Because that can be a real thing. The bible's just so hard to understand. I don't even see why I should bother trying. Friend, the reason none of those attitudes work is because every one of them is built on a lie. Look at verse 12. What what do ascending to heaven or going beyond the sea represent? It's It's an image. It's a symbol. Things that feel utterly elusive, completely out of reach. What's Moses' point? God's commands are not like that. They're not far off. They're not unknowable or unclear or impossible to understand. Look at verse 14. The word is what? It is very near to you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart so that you can do it. You can do it. How could Moses say the word that marks out the path of life is not far off in an unknowable, unclear, or impossible-to-understand kind of way. It's not a mystery. It's because God clearly and perfectly revealed himself to Israel through the perfect gift of his breathed-out written word. Using the gift of human language, because it's a gift. It's not fundamentally a power grab by Western imperialists. It's a gift so that God's people could know him and turn to him and and obey him for who he is. And yet, yet, Israel did not have what we have, brothers and sisters. They didn't have it because because God has spoken to us through more than his word written. He's spoken to us. He's brought his word very near. How? How? Through the word made flesh. Through Jesus Christ. The first Christmas, when the same God brought his word near in a far greater sense, the near word of the law has been superseded by the nearer word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 8. The word is near to you, Paul says, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because, how did it come near? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Through the work of the Spirit, God writes his words on our hearts by giving us a new heart that sees Jesus and treasures Jesus. So Kingsway, do not say God's word is too hard. And do not say God's word is too far off in Christ. God has brought it near. And through the indwelling power of the Spirit, you can obey him. You can please him. All who turn to the Lord, what's the promise? Are able to obey the Lord. What a promise. Don't get that wrong. Conclude with this. Perhaps there is a part of you that hears everything I've said today, and you think, well, well and good, Pastor. Well and good. It's good to remember that spiritual repentance has benefits for those who are into religion. But frankly, I'm not. And my life seems to be kicking along just fine. I don't know what the you're talking about, I have a great job. <laughs> I'm living the American dream. I just don't see why this whole repentance thing matters if, frankly, I'm not interested in being transformed from the inside out or being able to obey the Lord. No offense, but I'm pretty happy with who I am. Friend, Moses has a word for you in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Throughout all of human history, every culture, every language, every time, since the dawn of time, every man or woman, at all times and all places, is walking one of two paths. The path of turning away from God, which leads to death. The path of turning toward God, which leads to life. And what sets those two paths apart is repentance. Are you turning toward the God who saves? Who's revealed himself in Jesus? Or are you turning away? Turning toward God is the only path of life. Verse 20. Because he is your life. There is no life apart from him. Can you feel happy in this life doing your own thing? Maybe. I'll grant you that. But what are you going to do when you close your eyes for the last time? You stand before your maker. And you realize your life in this world was, was just a flash in the pan. And, and you're, you're standing on the precipice of eternity. You're going to stand there. What are you going to do then? You can be assured of life on that day, friend. You can be. And you can experience life in this broken world until that day arrives. It's, it's not a mystery. It's not a, I wonder what's on page 38. It's found in loving and obeying and trusting and following Jesus Christ. Verse 16, Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord will God will bless you in the land. But the opposite is also true. Verse 17, If your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. What's Moses' point? What's the point of the whole Bible? Your life in this world, friend, is not a choose-your-own-adventure. The consequences of the choices you make are known because God has made them known. With him, there is the blessing of life. Apart from him, there is the curse of death. And so friend, you have a real choice to make. A real choice to make. I implore you, choose life. Please choose life. Verse 19, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Life is not whatever you want it to be. Life is not found in chasing your dreams. Life is a person and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we stand grateful for the promise and the warning. You are so kind our all-knowing, sovereign God, to not be silent. You're so kind to speak. You're so kind to tell us in advance what the consequences of our choices will be. Lord Jesus, we pray right now, make us a people that turn to the Lord. Make us a people that turn to the Lord. Make make us a people that, that repent and keep on repenting until turning to the Lord becomes seeing the Lord face to face. Help us to turn, God. And thank you for motivating us to turn, to repent, by promising, telling us exactly what you will do as we do. Lord Jesus, transform us from the inside out. Give us the will, the power, and thank you that in you, Spirit of God, we have all the power we need. Oh, Great God, glorify your name through this church. Amen.